we're at an Anganwadi. It's about 600 meters down the road from where I live, in a neighborhood with brightly colored houses. The Anganwadi is at its heart, in a walled compound with a large unkempt garden and a building with a few small rooms on one side. As you enter, you see a desk, four plastic chairs and a godrej cupboard. On the floor are a bunch of slatted wooden planks. This is where the children sit, learn, play and sleep. Beside them are a pile of sacks filled with rice and dal. The walls are covered in brightly coloured educational posters like the ones we had when we were young. A for apple, B for ball, C for cat. There's also a small storeroom to one side with a few vessels and cooking equipment. It's a really hot day and the tin roof and the single fan isn't cooling the room much. It's also ration day. The teacher and the Anganwadi helper are busy. There are only a few children here at the Anganwadi today because it's the start of the summer holidays, but there's a steady stream of women coming in to collect dal, rice and jaggery. The teacher is quite hassled. The women, almost all dressed in 90s and holding plastic bags, wait their turn in the snaking queue, and there's an older woman at the front who replies loudly and cheekily when she's asked for her details. One by one, the teacher searches for their names in her record book, measures out dal using a steel glass and pours it into their waiting bags. She then asks them to count a sign against their names and tallies the records. She does this over and over again, chatting continuously as she works. The teacher declined to speak to us on the record after the strike and agitation of Anganwadi workers in Karnataka over their pay and social security. She's being cautious, but she was happy to speak with us about her work. We're at this Anganwadi because we're trying to understand what our country is doing to address the problem of stunting. Around 38% of all Indian children suffer from stunting. This means every third child is small in stature and unlikely to reach their cognitive potential or become fully realized versions of themselves. Anganwadi centers such as this were set up to provide services such as healthcare, counseling, medicines, food and nutritional supplements to women and young children through the Integrated Child Development Services Program. Feeding the nation has been one of India's biggest challenges since independence. Despite 70 years of social programs targeting the poor women and children, why is India still consistently behind in meeting international nutritional standards? Hi, I'm Samyukta Varma. And I'm Radhika Vishwanathan. And you're listening to In the Field, a show about India and development. In each episode of In the Field, we explore a complex issue India's trying hard to overcome, talk to the people shaping its solution, and find out how we can all be a part of it. In this episode, we speak with four experts who will take us from the Anganwadi to the clinic, and from the lab to the policy table. And they'll explain why stunting is so pervasive, how well we actually understand the problem, and what we ought to be doing differently. Before we dive in, there are a couple of important things we need to get straight. What's stunting? Why do we read about it so much in the papers? Stunting is an indicator used widely to assess malnutrition, which manifests itself in different forms. You could say a person is underweight, which means what it sounds like, that they weigh too little to be healthy. Or they could suffer from wasting, which means they have a severely low weight for their height. And for those interested, that's minus two standard deviations from the median weight. And stunting, the subject of this show, is a low height for age. 
You've probably heard of the thousand-day window of a child's life. I've heard the term used on TV, in reports, in the papers, and on the internet. It's used quite often as a time frame to catch stunting. And this is because what happens as a child in the first two years of its life lays the foundation for the rest of its life. If the child is constantly ill, say from diarrhea caused by poor sanitation, it creates a chronic persistent condition of nutrient underabsorption. And this is how stunting sets in. According to many researchers, it's largely irreversible. To find out more, we spoke to Dr. Anurag Kurpad, Head of Physiology and Nutrition at St. John's Medical College in Bangalore, one of India's leading doctors and researchers working on nutrition. We met him at his office in the old physiology wing of St. John's. What is stunting? Good question. I think stunting is seen as uh, an indicator. It's kind of something that we like to think is reflecting a number of other processes in the body by itself. I don't think there's a problem with being short. And there are many people who are short, but very successful. So stunting, when you take it as in a population, as a proportion of people who are short, you, you begin to wonder, are there other factors that cause it? Stunting in India is a special case because most of the world's stunted children live here. While there are many types of intergenerational factors that also affect how tall people grow, it's also not hard to understand why stunting is so prevalent. A recent survey in 2015 estimated that 75% of rural households earn on average of 33 rupees per person per day. That's around the official poverty line. But what would that get you? A potato, a bit of rice, a banana maybe? And we're not including healthcare and medicines, clothes, transport, education, water and sanitation, or any money for leisure or fun. If you live on the poorer end of the scale, your choices are limited, and nutrition may not be your highest priority. There's also a cold, hard economic consequence to this problem. Studies have estimated that losses from all forms of malnutrition are up to 11% of GDP in Africa and Asia each year. Children who don't get the right amounts of nutrients from healthy, balanced diets don't follow the same growth curve as healthy children. When they grow into adults, they earn 20% less, are 30% more likely to live in poverty, and less likely to work in skilled labor than comparable adults. The point about hunger and malnutrition and their effects on children is what might have been. It's this counterfactual thing that makes it so important. It's about what they could have been. Could they have grown taller and stronger? Could their brains have developed better? Could they have grown to their full potential? On paper, the government has set up a pretty robust framework to address health and nutrition in mothers and children. There are a number of schemes that support children from their childhood to their schooling and ones that target adolescent girls and mothers. But we wanted to know more about how things really work in the field. I spoke to Dr. Sunita Sapur, a development nutritionist based in Hyderabad. She works for the Piramal Foundation and is associated with the Fluoride Knowledge and Action Network. See, when you look at the government, really it's quite amazing the amount of um, uh, money they are spending on nutrition specific. They give some amount of supplementation from adolescent uh, when the woman is pregnant. Again, there is one full meal in South Indian states. They give rice, dal, one egg, one banana and 200 ml of milk. Now, this is such a nutritious food. 
uh, every single day in anganwadi centers this cooked food is prepared and they have it has been distributed to the mothers and especially they insist that the mothers need to eat in anganwadi centers itself you know and then um later it continues she's talking about the integrated child development services or icds program one of the most important schemes for women and children set up way back in 1975 to create a safe space in the village the anganwadi literally means the shelter in the courtyard and from for the child from 3 years onwards up to 5 years there is uh, again there is a distribution or provision of food in anganwadi centers and again once the child joins the school there is a school nutrition program or mid day meal program under the mid day meal scheme the state is also supposed to bear the cost of a hot meal containing a minimum of 300 calories and 8 to 12 grams of protein for every child and all of this for a minimum of 200 days a year it works in two ways it keeps the kids in school and it improves their nutrition so far so good right so more or less the food specific programs are in place still we are not able to see any improvement in malnourishment what i observed is whatever this food supply they need to support or supplement the normal diet but instead of supplementing they are becoming a substitutes you know they don't eat much in their house they just feel that the child is going to anganwadi center so the mother may not feed enough or if, even if she feeds she may give a glass of chai or a very small quantity of food and then she will send it to anganwadi center so one meal is completely missing and after going back home typically the child may go back by 3:30 4 o'clock these these mothers are there in the fields they come back after 5 6 o'clock and they cook the food and give the food around 7 o'clock or something like that so there is a long gap between these meals for mothers and children the food and support provided by these schemes are supposed to work as an extra buffer but for many women and children it's become much more than that and that's how the scheme works dr nirupama shivkumar is a pediatrician from st john's medical college who runs an observation clinic just north of bangalore Her team is trying to understand the causes and prevalence of stunting and she works closely with anganwadis. So if you look at the anganwadis you have one anganwadi teacher and one help that is on the anganwadi worker and these anganwadis have to report on multiple things so they need to have a schedule on immunization they should have schedule on their kids they should have their weights they should have their preferably their lens they should have as to what rations they get they probably have like 25 records to be filling each month and they have a monthly meeting which they have to keep reporting to the area supervisors we saw this in the anganwadi we visited it's clear that most anganwadi workers are overworked and they've agitated for years to get government social security something the center recently agreed to these schemes are not perfect but whether they work well or not people are very dependent on the icds And despite patchy implementation, some states, even poorer ones like Jharkhand, have improved child health indicators. But it's an uphill battle. In 2015, central budget allocations for the ICDS were severely cut by 60%. This means that states now bear the responsibility for covering the shortfall in funding from their already limited budgets. There's also talk of converting it into a cash transfer scheme. But the Anganwadi system is so much more than just a scheme. It's staffed by incredibly committed people who constantly battle to make things work. 
The helper we met had been with the Anganwadi for over 25 years and proudly introduced us to mothers who were her students decades ago. So for a scheme that provides much more than just material benefits, what happens to the millions who will fall through the cracks? Back to Nirupama. The Anganwadi system or the ICDS has a practice of uh, giving home rations for beneficiaries who are mothers, who are lactating mothers, or mothers with kids of one to two year olds. Uh, so when they give these rations, they're basically giving rations, or those people who take rations are those who are below poverty line. So we are not aware if they are actually selling these rations or distributing it among a big family. Usually these are joint families. And whether, usually we know that the mothers eat last. So are they the ones who are again being deprived of the food that we give them? Or are the kids being deprived? Or maybe there could be ignorance at the level of what to feed the kid. Remember, the Anganwadi we visited provided only dal, rice and jaggery. But what else do the women and children eat? If the system is to make us eat better, we also need to know what happens inside people's homes. But you don't know what people eat. And the reason for that is that India did away with its National Nutrition Monitoring Board. There is something called the National Sample Survey, which does look at expenditure of food, which is a great survey. However, the problem is it looks at household expenditure. And it will tell you there are four people in the house, but you don't know how the food was divided up among them, and you don't know whether they were undernourished in terms of weight. So you could see the amount of food being eaten in the house and the types of food is very detailed. But you have no idea of the outcomes in terms of what it did to the height of those children, for example, in the house. That's Anura Kurpar again. He's referring to the National Family Health Survey, the district-level household survey, and the annual health survey, all conducted by the Indian government. The NFHS, the first one he mentions, was last conducted in 2015. And like all of these national surveys, it mainly measures outcomes. Health outcomes are indirect ways to understand nutrition, and they capture the impact of nutrition. But to better establish the links between growth, nutrition, and food, we need more data. The National Nutrition Monitoring Bureau that Anura mentions was mandated to measure nutrition but was shut down in 2015. Specific data on stunting is also pretty patchy. Who's really looking at stunting? Does it affect policy? Does it inform policy? There's no data. Other than the standard epidemiology of mm. old data sets from the NFHS. There is nothing going on from a policy viewpoint in that sense. Even programs like feeding programs are never evaluated properly. There's a great opportunity to actually take a feeding program and evaluate it. When you put money into someone's bank, did they buy more fruit? <laughs> you don't know. And if they bought more fruit and ate a guava with every meal, they, their anemia would probably disappear. But you don't know that. That's the frustrating thing. The interesting thing is that while the government struggles to understand what we eat and to influence people to make choices, there's one group who does know what we eat and probably knows us better than ourselves. And that's the private sector. This led me to Rinka Banerjee, a food and nutrition consultant with some of India's largest companies. I asked her about the relative role nutrition plays and where company responsibility lies. What the, uh, the companies and the, private, the larger private companies can bring is the brand, for sure, because ultimately a consumer will, not, will buy only a brand that they trust. If you can sort of remember the Annapurna uh, iodized salt story, 
right from the very beginning it's all about uh, mental performance it's all about achievement you know they had a concept and they th- stayed through it for the next you know i don't know 15 years or so and how it's like about a woman trying to achieve more and it was really about how the mother actually fed iodized salt right from the very beginning which led to you know the right mental development and so on companies use nutrition to successfully market certain products they also make a huge contribution to addressing nutrition problems like with the iodization of salt but nutrition isn't a core objective for many companies and not all companies are at the forefront championing better nutrition for every healthy product there will be 10 or more other cheap snacks like the 2 rupee packets of kurkure so low in nutritional value that they were once suspected of containing plastic first of all it has to be part of the um, overall uh, you know corporate vision and if you look at the larger companies today you look at a unilever look at a pepsico look at a, um, even a britannia i mean it had a very clear nutrition vision i mean i have worked on various projects and various and i've seen many many projects getting shut down yeah why did it get shut down because it's not part of our main strategy you know we have many other priorities to be done things like that so i think somewhere the prioritization of this has to happen with the larger companies there needs to be a separate bunch of people or group of people who are largely working on this i think that prioritization is something that i'm kind of still seeing a bit uh, it's all nice lot of talk but i'm still missing the action in place uh, you know for for that large food and beverage companies do extensive research on consumer behavior right up to designing flavors for specific states and communities but they will only do the minimum when it comes to championing nutrition standards unless there is strict regulation by the government or public demand that forces them to do so भाषण प्रतियोगिता की तैयारी पूरी है मेरा सपना है मैं बड़ी होकर एयरफोर्स पायलट बनूंगी इसके लिए जरूरत होगी कड़ी मेहनत और तेज दिमाग तेज दिमाग की तेज दिमाग करे सपने साकार नया अन्नपूर्णा आयोडाइज यू जस्ट हर्ड द ओल्ड एडवर्टाइजमेंट फॉर अन्नपूर्णा सॉल्ट दैट रिंका मेंशनड द मदर इज क्लियरली कंसर्नड अबाउट डूइंग व्हाट्स राइट फॉर हर चाइल्ड जस्ट थिंक ऑफ ऑल ऑफ द एडवर्टाइजमेंट्स अबाउट फूड यू प्रोबेब्ली सीन they're all centered around the mother but in reality how easy is it for mothers to take the right decisions for themselves or for their children there are a lot of taboos lot of restrictions lot of expectations from the women it can be a girl it can be married uh, woman or it can be old age that's sunita sapur again in villages they say that you should not eat this you should not eat that you should not do this you should not you know um have egg if you take egg the child is going to get bald hair otherwise you should not eat till it is very hot for you you should not eat banana it creates some other problem so there are lot of taboos lot of fears if i am pregnant if somebody tells me that it is going to harm my child you know even the anganwadi worker comes and tells me that uh, it is good for you go and eat she is not going to believe that because it is something very strong in my mind expecting the whole lot of behavioral changes only placing one anganwadi worker who is from the same village having the same background having same fears expecting her to create that um, atmosphere or to really take away that fear is not really fair enough men are rarely a part of the strategy just name one single program where men are involved in the reproductive health just one single program where men are educated about the child health not a single platform not a single program not a single project is there addressing the men 
Nutrition programs target women. Companies also target women. But let's assume the women who Sunita are referring to know what they have to do. They're being told what to do at the Anganwadi, by the advertisements they watch, by their families, by the health workers who visit them, yet the problem persists. There are many reasons why. It could be because women may know what to do, but they choose not to. Or maybe they want to make the right choice, but they can't. Or it's that our strategies aren't getting through. It's not that stunting has a gender problem. It's that there's a large gender problem in India. And it's something we are well aware of. But we still need to understand its consequences. A baby is a great sink for protein, which is something that is built up in the stores of women from the time they are adolescent girls. A poorly nourished woman who has a child early is clearly at a disadvantage. Women don't eat high protein diets during when they're pregnant. So what women do eat is the thing of eat for two. So if they eat so much a bucket of rice, they eat a bucket and a half of rice, which is actually not a high protein diet. It's a poor diet. You're eating more of a poor diet. I think these are problems we really need to address. But if that is the case, and yes, we need to feed pregnant women, and the ICDS system has something in place, but it's very cereal-centric. The protein is very poor in that. One of the things that drew us into this topic is that in the past five years, stunting has become somewhat of a buzzword, a rallying point for donors, NGOs and governments. It's a very effective strategy because it helps prioritize resources by bringing people and money to the table around a common cause. But it can create misconceptions amongst regular people about the impact of stunting. It's a fine line, using the term to spread a message and rally support without going too far. Remember the thousand-day window? It's a useful number to focus resources on, but it's not something we need to fixate on. The brain is remarkably plastic. It's able to overcome deficits. And there's no reason to say to a mother of a stunted child that your child is cognitively mm. impaired. Uh, they may do poorly at one time, but they have every, every reason to catch up and do better than others. Stunting is more complex than we often make it out to be, and researchers and doctors are just beginning to understand how it sets in and how we can fix it. Can you reverse stunting faster? Well, I think diet has a lot to do with it. Uh, in one study we did in poor schools in Bangalore, we actually recruited 600 children from very poor schools. and followed them for a year while feeding them a high-protein supplement. Now, it wasn't a high-protein diet. It was a high-protein supplement which supplemented their diets to become much better overall. And they, were, they started at six-year-olds and they went up to ten-year-olds. And we followed them for a full year. The surprising thing we found was that on the high-protein diets, the, the six-year-olds, for example, there were about 100 kids in that age group. There was about 21% stunting when they started out. At the end of that one year of feeding, None of them stunted. We need to remember stunting is also a phenomenon that can't be eradicated in a few years and it doesn't have a quick fix solution. In the past decade, stunting rates have fallen. We're doing many things well, but as we invest, we have to recognize that this is about the next generation. So can we find a balance between the three-year donor cycle, the five-year electoral term, and the 30 years it will actually take to see change? It's the interacting with kids, actually. Yeah. <laughs> the best part of the day is running behind them for urine, so. <laughs> I mean, what struck me the most when I was doing my post-graduation in pediatrics was uh, 
how these kids could have done better or not got infected in the first place if they had good nutrition in place. And that got me going on discovering more things about nutrition in order to understand how this can affect our body. So, you know, food is medicine. So how can just food alone improve a lot of things around these kids? One of the reasons Radhika and I created the show is because we wanted to take the conversations that we have with our colleagues out into the world. We've both worked in development, and most times work talk is about how we can close the gap between what we do in our work and our daily lives. The story of stunting is overwhelming, not just to us, but even to the experts we spoke to. We've learned that stunting is a problem with a high prevalence, supported by a system that isn't able to be more effective because we don't have the right data, made more complex by cultural issues that dictate how and what people eat. And all of these things are linked to the larger problem of poverty and deprivation. So what's our role in all of this? The people we spoke to for the show do everything from measuring the pee and poo of babies, to working to keep teenage girls in school, to creating markets for indigenous foods. And all of them said to us that there is room for many people to get involved, and many ways to participate. You could volunteer, help collect data for studies, connect with groups working on malnutrition, or just donate. But none of this has to happen formally. You can start by visiting your local Anganwadi. Every neighborhood, rural or urban, has one. And they're all on Google. The experts we spoke to were emphatic about needing to make the link between our individual actions and the larger story, which is the one about food, how we grow it, what we eat, and the markets we create. When we buy and eat locally grown food, we support the production of crops that are better suited to our climate and regions. And we help to put money directly in the hands of those who need it. Farmers are increasingly driven to grow cash crops or crops that aren't suited to local soils, or they grow to supply large supermarkets and processed food businesses. This comes at a cost. To their livelihoods and to their ability to grow nutritionally sound food for their own consumption. And it affects the ecosystems that support food production in general. If we want the market to push good food, then as consumers we have to educate ourselves and create a demand for it. So along with our basmati, why not buy millets like foxtail or ragi, sorghum, navani or bajra from farmers close by? These are better suited to our climate, which means they're easier to grow and sustain, and they're good for us. And it's also about acknowledging that so many of our food choices are driven by social and cultural rules that can limit us from achieving our full potential. If you think about it, we never really learned about diets in school. Every woman should know and be able to eat a balanced diet of cereals, proteins, vegetables and fruit, especially when she's a mother. And this is important. Through education, we need to confirm the best parts of our incredibly diverse cuisines and dispel myths and taboos around food. And that's the end of this show. Thank you for listening and join us next time. In the meantime, do subscribe. Visit our website, which has a whole lot more about stunting and nutrition. Do also follow us on Facebook. We're at In The Field India. There are so many people we spoke to and who supported us through the production of this first episode. We'd like to thank, in no particular order, Dr. Anurag Kurpad and Dr. Nirupama Shivkumar from St. John's Medical College, Dr. Sunita Sapur from the Fluoride Knowledge and Action Network, Rinka Banerjee from Thinking Forks, Oliver Cumming from the London School of Tropical Hygiene and Medicine, Aditya Pradyumna from Sochara, Bhavya Reddy, the folks at the Karnataka Health Promotion Trust, Urbani Foundation, Avinash Krishnamurti, Dr. Kripa Anandpur and Dr. Vijendra Rao. 
Thanks also to Siri Belusu for editing support, Karthik Varma for sound, Hollis Coates for production and music, and the Third Eye Studio for their studio. In the Field is supported by Rohini Nirekani Philanthropies. 